We're back in Luke chapter 15 today, uh, actually kind of picking up where we left off last week. We'll actually do a bit of review uh, as we think about what it is for God to find that which is lost. If you've ever lost something, you know what it is to feel that, that sensation. You feel the sinking pit in the bottom of your stomach. If you've lost something that's important to you, you know the, the emptiness that that leaves behind. I know it's going to sound like probably not much of anything, but... but one of the most intense sensations of loss that I've ever felt was over a phone. You can chastise me for this later. Uh, but literally, I was driving down the road. I was on my motorcycle driving down back roads. I was coming from Fairgrove, and I don't ever like to go on a highway. If I have my motorcycle, I'd just soon find the twistiest, windiest route, and that typically puts you in places you wouldn't normally be. In fact, I wasn't even exactly sure where I was when it happened, but I'd come to an intersection. Uh, I was crossing over one of the, a highway. I'm not sure even which one. And I saw clearing in the traffic, but I was changing music on my phone. And I had headphones. They were run, the, the cord was run up through my shirt and the headphones in. And I was changing the song because I just didn't like the song that was on. Saw clearing in the traffic, shoved my phone back into my pocket, took off, didn't think another thing of it, going 55 miles an hour around the curves, just loving life, listening. I'm, I'm certain it was good strong praise and worship music because, you know, that's who I am. I'm just that, that holy and just loving everything about what the day holds. And then the worst happens. Like I feel it happen. The phone falls out of my pocket. I feel the jerk on the headphone cord. It's like little earbuds. It jerks my head sideways. And then all of a sudden it goes light. My phone was gone. 55 miles an hour, I'm like, and there, I, I look, I, I start to stop, and there's a car behind me, and I'm, there's no way I can get stopped to go find where my phone went, so i got to go on until I can get out of, the, out of the way of this car and let this car go by, and I thought, man, my phone is lost, and I had this sinking, just pit in my stomach. Here's the thing, I'm not so petty that this phone caused me that much trouble. It's really what the phone represented to me. There's enough information. You know, if you, have a, if you have a smartphone, there's enough information on your phone. If somebody gets it, if the wrong person gets it, your life is at risk. Like not your physical life, but your, your identity, your electronic life. If the wrong person gets hold of that information, they can own you. They can be you for all intents and purposes. And then suddenly your life is ruined. So there's risk to my family, right? So this is bugging me. It's eating me up. And then not just that. The very next day, I was to be heading out of town. I was, it was a Saturday night. I was going to preach Sunday morning and rush down to Ozark to meet some pastors. We were going to climb in a car and head to Nashville. And I was, I, I just was raw. I mean, I was frustrated. I was, I was tense. This was my lifeline to Amy. I love my wife so much. She's here, so I need to say this, make sure she gets it. It was the way we were going to communicate. And if you've ever been away from your spouse and you love them like I love my wife, you know, man, you just can't. There's, there's no way. How in the world am I going to go out of town and not have a way to communicate with? I was sick about this. I, was, I mean, literally felt that sense of loss. Now, just so you know, I, I did find it. Maybe I'll tell you how I found it later. It depends on how long I'm going. But but did find the phone. But that's the thing. There's a reality that, that there's, there's really only a few things we can do. There's only a few ways we can respond. There's only a few ways we can deal with this depth of a sense of loss, right? Well, the first way is we replace what we lost. You can replace what you lose sometimes, right? So, so a phone, that could have been replaced. Now, I couldn't have, I couldn't have replaced my iPhone. There's no way I, we could have paid for another iPhone. There's no way I would have paid. Probably Amy would have shot me if I tried to pay for another iPhone. I'd have been paying for what I lost and buying one of those old flip phones. You know, the ones you got to actually, like, punch the number three times to text something. It's like, you remember, some of you might not remember them, but, but I, some people still use them. I'm sorry for you, but <laughs> no keyboard to type on. You can't look anything up. It takes forever just to think about doing anything with these old phones. You know, that, that's probably what I had to replace it with. But replacing it would have at least given me would have given me the peace of mind I could have communicated. But it wouldn't have happened in time for me to go on that trip. So replacement is not always the answer. Some things actually just cannot be replaced. Well, what do we need? What do we do? Well, you wait time. 
Time is the other way we respond to a sense of loss and we deal with a sense of loss. You remember the saying, time heals all wounds. And it does, except when it doesn't. I know people, I, know, I, I have friends whose parents have passed who time hasn't healed that wound and they've been gone for years. I know parents who have lost children that time has not healed that wound. It, it might not be in the forefront of our minds, but when you stop to think about it, that sense of loss is still, still real. It's still... See, the thing, thing is, is that there's some sense of loss. There's some things that we lose that time doesn't take care of and replacement is just impossible. And the only answer is to find it, to be reunited with it, be reconnected, to, 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 to regain what was lost. That's exactly the kind of, kind of thing that Jesus is talking about in these parables, in this chapter. Because see, what happens is when we find something, when we come across that thing we've lost that's very important to us, we don't just go back to level, right? Like we don't just, the needle doesn't go from sense of loss, emptiness in your gut, you know, that gut-wrenching torment that you deal with. It doesn't just move back to center like, okay, now everything's okay. When you've lost something that's vital to you, that's important to you, and you find it, the needle peeks out at joy, it peeks out at celebration. You don't just want to experience it, or you don't want to just be excited about it. You want to tell people how excited you are. You want to let people know I found it. In fact, I, I said this in the first service, and I'll say it again now. You have probably, maybe, even heard the story of my phone before, because I've used it as a sermon illustration before, because I was so excited. I even talked about it the next day. And when I went out of the first service, a guy walked up to me, and he said, as Jeff Ziegelman walks up to me, and says, hey, the day you lost your phone, isn't that the same day you packed your wallet and then didn't know where it was at when we're running all over the <laughs> Yeah, that was it. It was the same day. Because I was so excited that I had found my phone, that I was telling people. I was, I was so joyous. I was, I was celebrating. And not just was I celebrating, I was telling people, I found my phone. They're like, I didn't know you lost it. But I was like, I wanted you to know I found it. That's the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about. That's the kind of joy that Jesus is exhibiting in the face of these Pharisees grumbling. Right here in Luke chapter 15. See, this, this, this chapter where we see this contrast, these contrasting ideals and, 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 and priorities, it's, it, it's filled with tension. But it's filled with so much gospel goodness. God seeks out his people to save them from their sin because it is his joy to do so. If you're sitting in this room today, if you're hearing me speak right now and you are a believer, a Christian, you are not just one that God's like, oh, I found them. You are one in which God has celebrated over, which he has rejoiced over finding. What a message that God seeks out his people to save them from their sin. Because it's his joy to do so. This kind of joy. We see it in this trilogy of parables, this, these three parables that we're going to be studying. One we studied last week, the, the lost and found sheep. This week we'll talk about the lost and found coin. Next week we'll talk about the lost and found son. You know it probably more familiar as the prodigal son. As we study today, because these first two parables are so uniquely tied together, so, so parallel in their, in their telling, for the context, we're going to read through the whole chapter, or through the first uh, 10 verses. But 8 through 10 will be our focal verses. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And let me just point out some things. Remind those of you that are here this week, last week so that you have it back in your head, but kind of draw in those that weren't able to be here. It says, he, it says the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. So the, the teaching that was causing the Pharisees to reject him, to seek to deny him and discredit him, that same teaching that pushed them away drew the tax collectors and sinners to him. Right? So he's saying the same things in front of the crowds. He's saying the same things for everybody to hear, but for some, the self-righteous, the legalistic, it was pushing them away. He was speaking about sin. His message was one of repentance. It's pushing them away because they can't stand to think of themselves as sinners. But those who are ready, who are able to confess their sin, who are able to understand themselves as tax collectors and sinners, who are ready to say it out loud, are drawn to him. That's what's happening. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes are frustrated by it. Tells us that in verse 2. So this idea is, is that not only are they discrediting and denying, not only are they uh, upset with Jesus, they're upset with Jesus specifically about the things he's saying and the people he's associating with. You see, for them, this is a big problem. That he would sit down and have a meal with these people. And the Pharisees couldn't stand it. It frustrated them and they grumbled. It says they, they complained. They murmured about Jesus. And it says in verse 3, so he told them this parable. It was their complaining that motivated this teaching. So, so Jesus isn't just about teaching the gospel in this in, in these three parables. He, he is teaching and proclaiming the gospel. Don't misunderstand that. But he's motivated to do it for people who are complaining against him. He's pointing this teaching, this, this particular three parables, at a religious group of people that would openly confess they have no need of a Savior because look at what we've done. We are obedient to the law. And so I, I think that these three parables are, are as much an expression of grace and mercy as his sitting down with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, just think of it. How desperately does the American church, does, does this church need to hear and be reminded that even for the religious, it's so easy for us to, to move to this place where we are maintaining our own salvation, that we are maintaining our own holiness, that we are maintaining our own position before him. How desperately do we need to hear this message? A message of grace and mercy even for the religious. Well, the first parable, so, so he teaches this parable, and then he tells it in three parts. It's kind of a trilogy, if you will. We like trilogies, you know, this, I mean, I mean, if a movie goes past number three, then people start to make fun of it, right? So you get to Rocky Five, and that's too many. So we start teasing about Rocky Twenty-five because he went past three. Not, not trilogies are right. That's what Jesus does. I think that's that's the way it, it feels right. So Jesus gives us this trilogy. It's the same parable with three parts. And the first part's the lost sheep. What man of you having a hundred sheep, it says in verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. You see it there. So, so here's this picture, this illustration. And he kind of draws him into the story. What man of you, like which one of you wouldn't do this thing? But he doesn't leave us with just a picture. He doesn't leave us with just an illustration that we got to figure out on our own. He actually draws gospel themes out of it by the very next words he says in verse 7, just so I tell you. In the same way as a shepherd went after the sheep, as the same way that the shepherd picked up the sheep rejoicing, in the same way that he came home and celebrated, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Here, here it is. Here's this, this picture that he gives us, this explanation. We see it in this first parable that the, the lost sheep is lost, has no way back on its own, and, and the shepherd must go after it, and the shepherd will not stop seeking it until he finds it. Probably the most important five letters in that sentence is he seeks until he finds it. He doesn't stop. He relentlessly seeks out his lost sheep when he finds it. He picks it up on his shoulders rejoicing. And this is exactly what Christ has done for you and I. He put on flesh. He dwelt among us. He entered into the wilderness, if you will, to come and seek us out, to come and find us. And in the midst of the wilderness, he put himself in harm's way. He put himself in a place of risk and a, a, a place of, of, of rejection, a place where, where things could happen that he wouldn't have had to endure had he just stayed at home. But the shepherd seeks because he cares so much for his sheep. 
When he finds us, he picks us up. And if you remember the picture, the, the shepherd picks us up. He carries us on his shoulders, rejoicing. That's exactly what he did in the cross. You remember the, I, I, I used a couple of different ways to illustrate it. One of them was one of my favorite hymns, the, It Is Well With My Soul. And I think it's the third verse where it talks about our sin, not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You see, he didn't leave us to deal with our sin in any way. When that shepherd found the sheep, he picked that sheep up and took the burden of the sheep. In the same way, God has taken your burden. You have not walked. You have not held the consequence. You have, yeah, certainly you feel it. Certainly we live in a cursed world, but, but Christ has taken the burden of you upon his shoulders and he doesn't set it down. In fact, I pointed out there's no picture, there's no point where, where we really get to see the this, this, this shepherd setting the sheep down. He comes home and calls his friends to him to celebrate. And it seems like he's holding the sheep. Look at this sheep that was lost that I found. And I personally think also that this is a very pointed statement at the Pharisees. The 99 who don't need repentance. Who in the world is that? We know that the sheep are representative of people. What person has ever lived that didn't need to repent? Only the shepherd. I think this is a statement pointed directly at them to challenge them, to show them that in their self-righteousness, in their own efforts, there is no reason for rejoicing. But in that one, that one wayward and repentant sinner, Jesus, God, rejoices. Heaven celebrates. I think Jesus even implies a challenge in this statement, in this phrase to the Pharisees. If heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner, why aren't you rejoicing? Why are you grumbling? If heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner, why aren't you rejoicing that as I teach them, they have the opportunity to repent and be rejoiced over? So even as we start today, it kind of sets a stage for us. Like, where, where are we going to land? Are we going to be a people marked by the rejoicing over the lost sinner or the repentant sinner, over the lost sheep, over the lost coin, or are we going to be a people who ignore it? See, Jesus isn't finished. He's not just pointing this to them once. He's not just pressing it on them once. He moves on to his second uh, installment in this trilogy. And he does so in the parable of the lost coin. So just for the sake of context, after I've talked so much, let me just pick it up back in verse 7. We'll read through verse 10. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over the one sinner who, who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, so alternatively, what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, in the same way. This is another way. Jesus is drawing out the gospel theme. He's drawing out the gospel truth. He's drawing out the grace and gloriousness of the gospel in this phrase. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, in their grumbling, the Pharisees were saying, without saying it out loud, without confessing it face first, in their grumbling, the Pharisees proved they didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was about doing. They didn't understand his purpose. They didn't understand why God would have sent him. The truth is, what they began to show in their grumbling was that they didn't know the God that they were seeking 
to please. They didn't know how to please the God that they longed to please. They didn't know what pleased him. See, they believed by their, by their um, self-righteous effort, they would be able to please God. They believed that if they followed the law to the T, they would please God. But what they couldn't comprehend, what they couldn't fathom was that they could not obey the law fully. Jesus showed it to him over and over and over and over again. You might obey the rules, but you miss the heart. You miss the spirit. There's a reality that they could not be righteous. They believed that they pleased God by keeping themselves clean. They, they believed, in fact, there's this perspective. It seems like there's this perspective is that they, uh, having been born into the line of Abraham, <clears throat> having been born into the covenant people of God, that they started at a position of cleanliness. And then they maintained that cleanliness. They maintained their, their approval or their, their position, not just because of who they are, but also what they did. And so you have stories in the, <clears throat> in the Bible about like Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan. So the Levite and the, and the priest they couldn't go near the guy dead, laying in the ditch, or, or broken, beaten, and bloodied, naked, laying in the ditch. They couldn't go near him because that would make them dirty. They couldn't go near an animal that was not approved or was not deemed clean because that would make them unclean. And so they, they maintained their cleanness. They believed they started clean, and they maintained it. They believed that they pleased God by keeping their distance from the likes of the people that Jesus was eating with. And if you think about it, if you just stop and think about it, one of, the, one of the things they call out as tax collectors, one of his closest, one of the 12 that he had chosen as an apostle was a tax collector. And there's no way they would have anything to do with them because in their mind to sit down and eat a meal was to, was to heap their filth upon you. They were missing the point. They were blind to their own sin. They were blind to the reality that they could not please God on their own. They would not confess. They would not repent. And by their own rejection, they would be numbered in and among the 99 sheep that were lost. They would be numbered among the 10 coins that were not celebrated. But this was a huge revolutionary point to be made. In the Tyndale New Testament commentary, Leon Morris quotes from a Jewish scholar named C.G. Montefiore. I don't know if I said that right, but I think it's close. We'll just call him C.G. for short, right? He, he points out what a revolutionary idea this is. He notes this. He says, God actively seeks out sinners and brings them home. This is huge. God actively seeks out sinners and brings them home. The rabbis agreed that God would welcome the penitent sinner, but it is a new idea that God is a seeking God, a God who takes initiative. You see, here's the reality is that they thought, okay, well, if, if somebody figures out that they're a sinner, if somebody figures out that they've done something against God and they come to us and they start saying, hey, I want to be like you, then, then we'll teach them to obey the laws and then maintain their cleanliness and maintain their, their position before the Lord. And, and, and then they can be just like us and God will receive that person because that's what God does. But what they missed, what they couldn't figure out, what they couldn't grasp hold of is that in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the power of His Spirit within the world, God was actually initiating, seeking out lost people. The truth is that if you're sitting in this room and you have been found, it is not because you got up and repented on your own. It is because God found you that you could then repent. You see, you are saved not because you worked it up in yourself or figured it out on your own, but because the Holy Spirit came in and opened your eyes to the reality. You are a sinner. Thank you. That should be amen. And I'm saying this to you, but you need to know I mean it about me. There's none who seek God. No, not one. So we, 
we, we get this so mixed up in the world, right? I mean, we talk about these seeker-sensitive service, services, and we, in, in the church growth movement, seeker sensitivity became all about. The, that was the rage. Like, if you want to grow a church, if you want to reach people, you've got to water it down. You've got to wash it out a little bit so that we don't become offensive to anybody. So we remove confession of sin. We remove confrontation with sin. Because, man, if you, if, you, if you confront somebody, they'll just run away. And, and it totally disregards the reality that God is seeking sinners. And if God is seeking sinners, he will not stop seeking sinners until he finds them and picks them up and carries them home and invites his friends to celebrate. You see, I'm not against being conscious of the seeker that sits in the room and might be asking questions about what it is and to believe and how do I know and what is, the, what is this Jesus here to do? I'm not saying that we shouldn't be conscientious and concerned about that. But if one is seeking to follow Jesus, it is because Jesus has sought them out and found them. And he's picked them up and carrying them home. So what they need is not seeker sensitivity. What they need is truth wrapped up in grace that will show them that God seeks out people just like them. You have been found. And God rejoices over finding you. God seeks out his people to save them from their sin because it is his joy to do so. You see, somewhere along the way, what had happened is that these Pharisees had lost sight of the fact that they weren't always clean. They'd lost sight of the fact that their people weren't always clean. Their people didn't start in, in covenant with God, that God didn't in some way just find these clean people and decide, well, since they're clean, since they're righteous, I'll just, I'll just use them. When God found Abraham, or, or Abraham didn't find God, God found Abraham. And when God found Abraham, he was among the pagans. He was an idolater. And he says, you, you, Abram, come, follow me. I'm going to take you to a land that I'll show you. He didn't give me a lot of detail. He didn't tell him how it was all going to work out. He didn't tell him at some point he's going to be confronted because he's lying about his wife being his sister. And he didn't tell him how he was going to, at some point, call him to sacrifice his son on the mountain. He didn't tell him that he was going to end up, end up sleeping with, a, with, with, with one of his wife's handmaidens and, and, and have all this trouble because he was going to take his life into his own hands. He didn't tell him that there was going to be a lot of difficulty along the way. But this pagan man, he entered into his life and he said, wake up, come and follow me. And you know what Abram did? He followed him. When God found Moses, Moses wasn't looking for God. Moses was a baby who had been supposed to be killed. Pharaoh was killing all the, the, all the boy children. I had to look this up. Couldn't remember all the details. I was mixing up Herod and Pharaoh in my mind. Pharaoh was killing all the boy children born to the Israelite women. The midwives were supposed to cast them into the Nile. They were supposed to come along, take the baby, and kill it. They could let the girls live, but all the boys they were supposed to kill. But God found Moses, and God protected Moses, and God made sure that Moses lived. You know where he ended up being raised? Even though he was put in the Nile in a basket of reeds and found by Pharaoh's daughter, you know where he ended up being raised? By his mother. You know why that was? Not because of who Moses was, but because who the God was that found Moses. Truth is, Moses, had God not been involved, Moses could have just as likely been a, a, a prince that became Pharaoh. Had God not found him, saved him, protected him, and watched over him. Moses didn't earn his place. God gave it to him by his grace and his mercy. And somewhere along the way, these Pharisees forget 
And they begin to think that, oh, we've done this. Look at all we've done. Look at how we've lived. Look at all the laws that we follow. Look at the ways that we have come along and, 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 and obeyed and, and done what pleases God and honored him with our lives. Until they see Jesus. And he confronts them. In grace and mercy, he confronts them. Because he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. People like you and me. He, he would not have been able to sit down at a meal with you and me, according to these Pharisees. See, instead of admiring Jesus' work, they were frustrated by it. Instead of seeing that this is... Here's the thing. is that They saw Jesus' work as a problem where Jesus presented it as the solution. You see, the contrast is, is, is thick. It's, it's all over the place. They're, they're standing opposed to God. Instead of participating with Jesus, rejoicing over the repentance of sinners, they complained. But by His grace, as an act of mercy, He didn't just write them off. He didn't look at them and say, hey, you don't have a chance. He told them these three parables. He put them in the middle of it to help them see how desperately wrong they were. He comes to this second parable and he asks about this woman and her lost and found coin. It's easy, I think, easy for us to see that the coin is obviously the sinner. It's lost. Laying somewhere in a dust-covered floor in the darkness that is in the house. You know, they didn't have, it's not like they had architects that were building houses with, with that were trying to capture all the natural light. They might have had slits for windows. They might have had, might have had just cracks in the, in, in the, in the walls to, to let some light in, but it wasn't enough. So she asked to light a lamp to find this coin. It didn't matter that this coin was, was probably uh, imprinted with some king's picture on it. It didn't matter that, that, that this coin was, was, was of value to everybody in the world. If this woman had left it laying there, if she hadn't done anything with it, it would be worth nothing. What good is a coin laying in the dust, covered by the dirt, even if everybody else would say it had value? if she wouldn't search for it. You see, the reality is, is like this coin, every person that's born in the line of Adam, that's every person that's been born essentially except for Christ. Every man, every woman is like this coin. Laying in the dust covered up by darkness, even with the imprint of a king. But unless someone seeks it, it's absolutely useless. It has no purpose. It might, never have, it might as well never have been mined, never have been purified, never have been shaped into the, to the shape of a coin. But this woman cared so much about this coin that she would not stop looking until she found it. What a picture of the God who seeks after his people to save them from their sin because it's his joy to do so. And so the, really the question becomes, well, who's the woman? Well, it's easy to say well, the woman is representative of, of God. Like she's the picture of God in this passage. And, and when I first studied, started studying this, I actually intended to, to, to teach this parable and the one before it together because there's so many parables. They're the sheep and the coin both lost. The sheep and the coin both sought. The sheep and the coin both, both found. And then there's rejoicing that ensues. And I, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just go ahead and, and, and teach them together. And then I, I got to studying and I started digging in on it. And, I, and all the commentaries I read, not very many people took the view that I took, but I finally, as I came to one of Spurgeon's sermons, I was convinced I was convinced that there's a picture here 
that goes just a bit further, expresses just a bit more truth for us than just the fact that God seeks sinners. You see, when you put these parables in line, in a trilogy together, you have the son represented by the shepherd. You have the father standing watching for the, the, the prodigal to return or the wayward son to return. And in the middle, you have this picture of this woman. Very naturally, very easily, you can begin to say, this is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who's part of the Trinity, who works together with the other two people, or the two persons of the Trinity to seek the lost to save them. But I think it goes even further. Because how does God determine to work by His Spirit? Over and over and over, we see God's people represented first as His bride, You see that established in the Old Testament, even as the prophets are talking about Israel as adulterous wife who's going to be purified by her husband. And then you see it happening in the New Testament as well, as God's people are his bride. But then you also see the Spirit working through his people. You see this over and over and over through the Old Testament. Let me just give you one example. You remember the story of, of Moses going into Egypt, and he's, he walks into Egypt, and he puts his staff, like in the movie, you see it, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. He's not as powerful as Moses. We see that played out in the end. He, he won't do it. Ten plagues come along, and Moses won't relent. You know, Moses keeps going, let my people go. Ten plagues, and finally Pharaoh gives it up. He's like the, the firstborn, the final plague, firstborn of of all of the Egyptians are killed, and, and he's like, okay, go, go, get out of here before anything else happens. And so they send him away. Just incidentally, he sends them away wealthy. He sends them away rich. God gives the Israelites favor, and the Egyptians begin to heap all these treasures upon him. They send them out to go into the desert to make sacrifices and worship to their God. And after they're gone, Pharaoh's like comes out of his trance and it comes out of this comes to this realization whoa we got all these buildings half built i don't want to build them my people don't want to build them we need our slaves back so we can build them let's go get them and bring them back that may not have played out exactly like, but essentially he's going to get them to bring them back so they take off and here the israelites are going out to, they come to the red sea and they can look back and they can see pharaoh they can see him coming they can see the army and they're afraid. They're not, I mean, it's not like, not like they're just sitting there, oh, man, we're free. Not one of them are captured. Not one of them are taken again. God parts the Red Sea. They cross on dry ground. The last one exits, and the water closes over. And it drowns the most powerful army the world knew at that time. God defeated Egypt to deliver his people. And they come across the desert. They get to the Jordan. And Moses is like, all right, now this is, a, this is a powerful enemy. We're going to send 10 spies in. They're ready to come into the promise. And they're, they're ready to see the promise that God made to Abraham fulfilled by going into the promised land and taking up residence where they had been promised they would live. And, and, and they're like, okay, well, let's send in 10 spies. And, and, and 10 of them come back, but eight of them are freaking out. Like, this is a land flowing with milk and honey, but the people are huge, and they're going to kill us. They're going to get us. We can't go over there. So this God who had just delivered them from the Egyptians, was powerful enough to do that. But these eight spies said he's not powerful enough to do that. Except for two, Joshua and Caleb. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We should go. God's going to give it to us. No. People wouldn't do it. So they reject God. They rebel against him. They trust in their own power. They go their own way. And God's like, okay. To the desert. For 40 years, they're in the desert. Moses ends up dying. The rest of that generation ends up dying, and the younger generation comes up. They find themselves back at the Jordan. They cross again on dry ground. God stops a river flowing, right? They cross again on dry ground. They get to the other side. Uh, Joshua now, who's in charge, sends in two spies to Jericho. You remember how that story goes? They go into Jericho, they get found out, and this woman, this prostitute woman, hides them, protects them. And when people come knocking on, oh, no, 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 I saw them, but you know what, they're gone. They left, and she sends the the people who are after them another way. But she goes to them before, while she's hiding them, she goes to them, and she says these words. It's this testimony, I think, that is so powerful. Joshua 2, chapter 
chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, before the men lay down, before they go to sleep, she came up to, to them on the roof and said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land. Like she's convinced, right? She already knows Jericho is, belongs to the Israelites. She's not questioning this. I know the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. You hear that? The fear of you has fallen upon us. Not me. The fear of you. The the people of Israel has has fallen upon not just me, but all of us. The hearts of, of everyone in the land melt away before you. For we have heard. Here's why. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were before, beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. What these Israelites didn't and couldn't comprehend, what they couldn't see, is that by their just existing and following the, the, the pillar of cloud at day and, and pillar of fire at night, just by simply walking behind them, he was revealing the glory of his might and power through them, such that when they walked up to Jericho, these people were already scared to death, probably asking, where'd they go? We were certain we were done. We were certain the land was already given over. We were freaking out, scared to death, because this God, the God of this people, is so powerful. As soon as we heard it, she said, our hearts melted. You see, here's the thing, is that this is what God has always done. By His Spirit, He leads His people so that the world might know this God. A God of power. A God of might. A God that brings death where there are, or brings life out of death. A God who is able to deliver even the weakest and smallest of peoples. They couldn't do anything on their own. This God. He's showing His glory through His people. And He does it over and over and over all the way through the Old Testament. And He didn't indwell them in the way He does us personally, but He dwelt among the Israelites as He does us personally as every member of the church. In fact, we see it begin to, to scroll out or to, to roll out into the church as Jesus, one of Jesus' last commands, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, still following this pattern of God by His Spirit leading His people to bring glory to His name, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We, we could summarize that for the sake and the context of this message that I'm preaching today. Go and make me known. Go and let the world know of this God who has saved you. Go and make sure that people see me working on you and in you and through you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How is he with us? Spirit. Doesn't take a large leap to understand that His Spirit indwells His people, leads and empowers us. This woman, I think, I think this woman that Jesus is referring to in this parable is His people led by His Spirit that brings light, that shines into the midst of the darkness, brings the truth wrapped in grace, that it illuminates. You know what's really cool about silver coins? When the light shines on them, they sparkle. So it becomes evident they're laying in the dirt. You know, I told you I would tell you if I didn't go too long. I'd tell you how I found my phone. So iPhones are pretty cool because they have that find my iPhone kind of thing, like where's my phone? So I I look for like two and a half hours, three hours. It's like six o'clock when I start. It's dark when I quit. I can't, it's gone. So I call Amy. She had been at her, we were both out at Fairgrove at her aunt's house or just near Buffalo, actually. On her way home, she, uh, she, comes, she, she comes to where I'm at. I had gone to uh, Casey's, and, and I got in her car with her, and, and her and Tristan were there, and we, we took off to where my phone was generally known to be. Along the way, I opened the Find My Phone app on her phone, and I see it. And it, it's telling me it's, it's there. And I'm like, okay, I knew that's where it had fallen off because I'd felt it. I kind of had a general idea. 
we get there and I've got this grand idea that I'm going to hit the play sound and I'm going to be able to walk right to the phone. <laughs> Literally, this is the craziest thing. I hit play sound and my phone, I could see the battery meter, had just a little red line of, of battery life in it. It died. The phone shut off. And it just told me now, last known location, it would not play a sound. Like, what in the world am I going to do now? I'm, uh, again, just, oh, just distraught, frustrated. Amy, Amy's kind of laughing at me and thinking, it's a phone. I'm like, I love you so much. I'm looking for the phone. Tristan comes along. He turns his flashlight on, and he's walking along the ditch. And I'm telling you, probably six feet down near a culvert, the light shines off the glass of the phone. The beautiful thing is that God will seek you till he'll find you and the light will shine off of you so that people like me and you can find the lost. We bring the light. We don't shape, uh, step back from it. We don't water it down in some way. We don't cover it up and dim it down so that it doesn't shine. We need the light of God's spirit and his truth and his grace so that as we go being led by him, his glory is seen and his truth is heard so that the lost can be found because that's why he gives it. So that he can seek his people and save them from their sin because it is his joy to do so. Just like this woman. And when we find it, when we find it, there's so much reason to rejoice. I, I rejoice over the fact that I, I come every week and I get to speak to people every week that, like me, are sinners who have been found. I love the fact that we can gather with the intimacy and the reality of the truth of Scripture and we can gather around it and rejoice in its words. I come every week knowing that I speak to a people who have been raised in a very religious world who may blindly be standing and counting their own works as enough. And we shine that light, hoping for a glimmer. It's where we live. And so I guess I, I would ask you, what are you going to do today? I mean, just consider where you're at. Is your life filled with the rejoicing of repentant sinners? Is your life filled with rejoicing of your own repentance? Are you, are, are you the sheep that's been carried into the party and getting to celebrate? Are you, are, are you the coin that's been lost and now is found? Are, are you able to gather with the woman who found her coin and rejoice? Are you, are you one who is able to come in and, and, and repentantly confess your sin? Oh, we, we did it at the beginning of the service. How uncomfortable is that for the self-righteous heart? Repentance is not a reason for shame. It's a reason for rejoicing. Are you going to join Jesus in his rejoicing over the lost sinner? In fact, I might even ask the question, is it, is it possible that as we sit here today and consider the reality that this is what God rejoices over, this is what pleases God and makes him smile, this is what causes celebrations in heaven could it possibly be that if our life isn't filled with this kind of joy, it's because we're asking the Spirit to follow us instead of us following Him? Are we expecting the Spirit to fulfill our plans instead of us taking His light to fulfill His plans? See, it won't look like this exactly. But every time the idea of telling our neighbors, speaking to the people at work, and talking to the people that we spend time with, every time evangelism comes up, if, if we grumble 
and complain rather than rejoice at the opportunity for a lost person to be found. Maybe there's more going on. Let me say it different. Maybe there's less going on in our hearts than we might realize. Will you repent and rejoice today? Will you repent and rejoice with those who are rejoicing? Or will you reject it? You see, what happens is these Pharisees, they'd have nothing to do with Jesus sitting down and talking to lost people so those lost people could be found. How different are we if we go home today, walk in our door, and don't give a flip about our neighbor who is lost? Or we go to work tomorrow, people will spend 40 hours with and sit by people who are obviously condemned, laying in the dark, covered up by the dust, just waiting to hear the truth. But yet we say nothing. I believe God, by his people, intends us to be that woman seeking the lost coin. What will you be today? What will you do today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that? What you do just might reveal who you are. Let's pray. Father, help us. I know that I, I, I know, I know that your grace is sufficient. I know that there are there are fears and reservations and concerns, just like those Egyptians had, standing at the edge of the Jordan. Will you convince us again of your might and power? having delivered us, that you can deliver them, those that you send us to. Father, would you help us? Would you help us see the blindness that we have to our own sin, that that we wouldn't condemn others simply because it looks different in their life and sin seems more acceptable to us? Would you help us find it in our hearts and in the the life of the new person you've put within us to be a people who pursue the lost, that they may be found. God, use us in mighty ways. As you always have used your people, use us. That your light would go out and it would shine and that we would get to rejoice at finding what's been lost. Father, if there are those here today that have been religious all their life but have never repented of their sin? Would you, by your Spirit, use these words? Open their eyes. Lead them to repentance that they may be found. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name, Spirit, by your power, Father, for your glory. Amen.